Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In terms of war crimes, it's difficult to match one Colin Luther Powell. The government has never prioritized the most vulnerable within our society in times of disaster. The working poor, immigrants, indigenous groups, people with disabilities, and the list goes on. In fact, history tells us that these groups are sacrificed first and their collective needs for restoration post-disaster are considered last. And we now know from the events of January 6th and the relentless attempts to subvert the results of the 2020 election in the last days of the prior administration, it was and still is a near thing. That's what's so chilling and frightening. As it is in the old Protestant hymn I remember from my youth, So it is today. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. I believe that this is that moment for each of us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. In a sense, Washington, D.C. has been all by itself a tale of two cities this week, especially when it comes to reporting on the life of former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who died Monday at the age of 84. And we'll discuss all of that later in the show with Professor Gerald Horn. But there is also a divide when it comes to the continuing deadlock over passing President Biden's Build Back Better legislation to expand child care, elder care, health care, free community college, and address the climate catastrophe. This week, it was reported that Biden, to get the support of two right-wing Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, would further cut the already compromised $3.5 trillion package by up to a half, with climate measures and community college on the chopping block. In response, climate activists held a series of protests and hung banners near Manchin's houseboat yacht docked at D.C.'s marina. Sophia Geiger told the local CW affiliate why she was protesting Manchin. Um, He does not get to just sit on his yacht while his state drowns in floods. Also, youth activists with the Sunrise Movement launched a hunger strike outside the White House. And today, as part of the youth global climate strike, there are announced actions here in D.C. at the White House and at Union Station. Rashini Prakash, co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement, spoke Wednesday night on an online forum hosted by Senator Bernie Sanders titled, What's in the Damn Bill? She highlighted what is included in Build Back Better, including investments to make the transition to renewable energy. This is a watershed moment of choosing to invest in the social and economic fabric of our country and begin this project of rebuilding what has been eroded over the last few decades. And I think setting up the foundation for public investment in public goods that are going to benefit our lives for decades to come as we inherit this earth and we are responsible for the future of this planet is going to be really, really important. And so I know this is just a first step, but I think it's a really, really important one. 
This week's climate protests followed last week's People versus Fossil Fuels action in front of the White House, where more than 600 people were arrested. And they are happening less than two weeks before the UN Climate Conference of the Parties. COP26 begins in Glasgow, Scotland. According to leaked documents just released by Greenpeace, major conference participants, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Australia, and the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, are already trying to remove recommendations in an upcoming UN report that the world must make the transition away from oil, gas, and coal to tackle the planetary emergency. The latest attempt to pass voting rights legislation has also gone down in flames. The Freedom to Vote Act was supported by West Virginia's Senator Joe Manchin, who would not support previous voting rights legislation this session after failing to support the For the People Act or a bill crafted by the late Representative John Lewis. Manchin claimed that he could secure Republican support for this newest, somewhat watered down legislation, but he could not. Not one Republican voted for federal protection of voting rights as a wave of voter suppression laws have passed in 17 states around the country. Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, took to the floor for nearly a half-hour speech on Wednesday, declaring the attempt to tamper with elections the biggest danger to democracy. Two interrelated things are happening right now with regard to this system that are unprecedented in my lifetime and have caused me to worry, as I never have before, about the future of my country. These two things are profoundly dangerous to our fragile republic. One is the breakdown of trust in the system itself, and the other is an overtly partisan attempt to use this loss of trust as a pretext to change the results of future elections by limiting the participation of voters deemed unworthy, although that's rarely said out loud, or unlikely to vote for your particular political party. This discussion is usually framed in terms of election integrity, the prevention of widespread voter fraud, which it is argued is tainting the outcome of our elections. Unfortunately, these so-called election integrity measures almost invariably end up limiting the participation of a substantial number of voters, many of whom have historically been denied the right to vote by one device or another for over 100 years. And we now know from the events of January 6th and the relentless attempts to subvert the results of the 2020 election in the last days of the prior administration, it was and still is a near thing. That's what's so chilling and frightening. The failure to pass voting rights legislation or other Biden campaign promises brought on renewed calls this week to end the Senate filibuster rule requiring 60 votes to pass a law. King and other Democrats took to media and Twitter pointing out that the filibuster rule, which has been used repeatedly since Reconstruction to block human rights legislation, is now allowing 41 Senate Republicans representing 21% of the country to block voting rights legislation supported by nearly 70% of Americans. 
Here is an update on the fate of Haitian asylum seekers in the U.S. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order preventing any state agencies from quote-unquote aiding or abetting in any way Haitian immigrants being settled in that state. In response, South Florida's social justice activists, churches, and state representatives have taken in dozens of families as they point out the stark difference in how Haitians are being treated compared to, for example, Afghans or Cubans. Also this week in Florida, Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab, just kidnapped by the U.S. from a black site in Cape Verde, appeared in court for a show trial on charges that he violated U.S. sanctions designed to starve the Venezuelan people. More on Saab later in the show. In policing, jury selection is underway for the murder trial of three men, father and son Greg and Travis McMichael, and their neighbor William Bryan in the death of Ahmad Arbery, who was shot to death while jogging last February near the port city of Brunswick, Georgia. And this from Yahoo News, Gage Grosskreutz, shot by U.S. teenager Kyle Rittenhouse during racial justice protests in Wisconsin last year, has filed a lawsuit against local law enforcement he accuses of deputizing a roving militia of white nationalists. And in Louisiana, Carl Cavalier has been fired as a state trooper for being a whistleblower in the case of a black motorist, Ronald Green, who was tortured and beaten to death last year by police. Federal prosecutors are investigating whether Louisiana State Police brass obstructed justice to protect the troopers seen on long withheld body camera video tasing, punching, dragging, and beating Ronald Green during his 2019 arrest. And finally, the impact of policing in schools was one topic at a national gathering of educators this week. Chantal James was on hand. The National Coalition on School Diversity hosted a panel conversation called School Discipline and Desegregation, a cross-movement conversation. Moderated by Olatunde C. Johnson, Jerome B. Sherman, professor of law at Columbia Law School, three scholars helped those who had gathered deepen their understanding about the relationship between school discipline and desegregation. Included in the notion of school discipline for the purposes of the discussion was the presence of police in schools. It was noted that police are far more likely to be present in schools with a majority population of students of color, pointing to the need to diversify schools. Matt Coutts, PhD candidate in the History and Education program at Teachers College Columbia University, gave some historical context for increased policing of black and brown youth after Brown versus the Board of Education. The deployment of city police forces or the National Guard when local police forces wouldn't ensure peaceful desegregation was in anticipation and response to threats and enactment of violence by white protesters. Although the city deployed police to prevent white violence, police officers turned their attention to black students and families, disproportionately arresting black youth compared to their white peers. For instance, during the first three months of the second year of court-ordered desegregation in Boston, the BPD arrested 63 black youth compared to 37 white youth, even though white students still made up more than half of all BPS students. The National Coalition on School Diversity has put forth that discipline and desegregation are inextricably linked, 
Both are intimately tied to the question of who belongs in our schools and communities. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. My name is Chancia Willis, and I serve as the Chief Executive Officer for the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management, IDEM. And I'm ever so grateful for the opportunity to share information with you today regarding the federal government's response to Hurricane Harvey. As discussed earlier today, the emergency management system as we know it, one that aims to reduce the harmful effects of hazards and disasters, does not work the same way for everyone. Some benefit from it and some are further harmed by it. Those that are affluent and are middle-class, uh, white homeowners, et cetera, have the expectation of justice and full recovery in the unfortunate event of an unforeseen disaster. The emergency management system has the policies and programs that were put in place to assure them a full and timely recovery post-disaster. Those neighborhoods are restored faster, and if there is significant damage, 
they are provided with more funding to move to a safer, less hazard-prone location. Conversely, the other America must endure the impact of the other emergency management system, a system that does not provide full or timely recovery, a system that is more likely to deny requests for assistance, a system that delays and prevents recovery in a methodical fashion. This other system does not recognize that biased policies such as redlining and segregation increase a community's exposure to hazards and in fact, sees the members of that community as acceptable losses. This other emergency management system operates within the construct that those that live in higher value neighborhoods that are educated and that have more access to resources are thus more valuable and deserving of full recovery and a greater share of funding resources to mitigate against future disasters. The overarching goal of disaster policies both then and today has been to restore economic stability and wealth to land and homeowners. The federal response to Hurricane Harvey is a repeat of many other disasters that have occurred throughout history. The government has never prioritized the most vulnerable within our society in times of disaster, the working poor, immigrants, indigenous groups, people with disabilities, and the list goes on. In fact, history tells us that these groups are sacrificed first and their collective needs for restoration post-disaster are considered last. Based on a post-disaster survey, 45% of affected residents during Hurricane Harvey said that they were not getting help, and that number rose to 64% amongst Black residents. More alarming, approximately 40% of those applications were denied without reason, while others were denied because their homes were located in flood zones, and thus they were required to carry flood insurance. Of course, this is a luxury for lower-income residents. Disasters should not be seen as singular events. They are an ongoing phenomenon used to authorize and impose further suffering on vulnerable groups. It is post-disaster that we see redistricting lines shift and voter suppression. It was after Katrina that we saw disaster gentrification, where an entire city was absolutely shifted in terms of demographics to become majority white. FEMA denied recovery funding to thousands of African-American people post-disaster when they denied heirs' property rights, which forced them to leave the city they love. As you see, disasters have immediate impact on underserved and um, underserved communities and long-term impacts. When an entire group of people are intentionally allowed to suffer physical, emotional, and economic harm, one might call it a crime against humanity. In emergency management, we call it disaster recovery. There are many federal and state organizations that are now touting equity as their focus because of the Biden administration's equity mandate, but their actions are performative. They are doing what they need to do to check the box by hiring untrained equity consultants and failing to make the bold sweeping changes that will actually impact people and how they are treated in disaster. In fact, there has been no move to intentionally hire or contract non-white led disaster management firms to lead major or minor disaster response and recovery efforts. This is significant because disaster recovery firms come into a community to provide the initial damage assessments, to provide inspections and to supplement state resources. 
FEMA has no requirement for cultural competency training for contractors, its inspectors, or for anyone in their workforce. And so they continue to contract firms that have not been trained with a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This will lead to a repeat of disproportionate impact. In closing, while natural disasters do not discriminate, their long-term impact disproportionately falls on marginalized groups. The marginalized homeowners must wait the longest, often years, to receive assistance and complete their recovery. That delay and that lack of predictability harms survivors and causes irreversible damage to children, to families, and seniors who suffer unnecessarily because of this lengthy process. Equity should be a commitment and embedded into all of our policies and programs. We must prioritize the people and focus on humanity with approaches that ensure equity in transaction. And currently, we are doing the most for the most. Thank you for your time. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averum. Well, in a sense, Washington, D.C. has been all by itself a tale of two cities this week, especially when it comes to reporting on the death of former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who died on Monday at the age of 84. In the city of corporate media, Powell had, quote unquote, a stellar career, even if he had one big blot on it, lying to the U.N. Security Council to gain support for the U.S. invasion of Iraq. He was a pathbreaker, the New York Times reminds us, as he served as the first Black National Security Advisor, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Secretary of State. But in the city of independent media and peace and human rights activists, Powell was a war criminal, responsible for either direct or indirect involvement in the killings of tens of thousands of people from Vietnam to Central and South America, to the first Gulf War in Iraq, and finally to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where at least a million Iraqis were killed with ancient cities destroyed and priceless artifacts documenting the beginnings of human civilization destroyed or stolen. Well, here to discuss the legacy of Powell is on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, His more than three dozen books includes the instant classic, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. 
Well, in addition to the long list of Powell's crimes that went over kind of quickly, I've been trying to figure out if he was also the first prominent figure of what is being called intersectional imperialism. And tell us what the top line of your Colin Powell obituary is. Well, first of all, with regard to your first point, I'm not sure if if he was the first so-called intersectional imperialist. One of your fellow Washington, D.C. residents, I'm speaking of the erstwhile left-wing late professor Ralph Bunch of Howard University, who, as you know, in the 1940s became a member of the precursor of the Central Intelligence Agency, speaking of the Office of Strategic Services, and then jumped to the United Nations after it was founded in 1945. You may Hmm. recall that he won a Nobel Peace Prize, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize in part by stabbing Palestinians in the back during the Israel creation circa 1947-1948. Recall that the top UN diplomat at that time was the Swede, Count Folk Bernadotte, and the Zionist extremists assassinated him. I've always suspected that they did so in part because they recognized that his deputy, Dr. Bunch, a U.S. Negro, would take his place and that he would be more compliant and pliable. And fundamentally, that's the way it worked out. And of course, Ralph Bunch also played an ignominious role in 1960-1961 in terms of the Congo crisis, which eventuated with the Central Intelligence Agency assassinating Congolese patriot and founding father Patrice Lumumba. But having said that, I do think the premise of your question is accurate insofar as, in terms of war crimes, it's difficult to match one Colin Luther Powell, not only with regard to what you have referenced, but also with regard to what happened in Panama during the administration of the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush where the leader of that nation, Manuel Noriega, who had carried quite a bit of water for U.S. imperialism, they turned on him and then kidnapped him and took him off to prison in Florida. And this after bombing Panama mercilessly, uh, leading to the deaths of too many to count, And then there's Mr. Powell's ignominious role with regard to the Contra War in Nicaragua, which involved, amongst other crimes, the mining of the harbors of Nicaragua. Now, we could go on in this vein. Some of this was represented in some of the more thorough obituaries. But there are two factoids that I'll mention that have generally been ignored. One is that given his being raised in New York City, he happened to work for a shopkeeper and therein learned Yiddish, which proved to be quite important in terms of bonding with certain Zionist leaders, which proved to be quite useful in his climbing the greasy pole of success. 
And then there's another story, which I'm afraid to say may have turned Mr. Powell into a kind of a national security threat, even to U.S. imperialism. If you plug into your search engine the name Colin Powell in Romania, a rather serious scandal will pop up on your screen involving an illicit relationship Mr. Powell had with a woman in the highest level of Bucharest national security uh, who apparently turned Mr. Powell into something of an asset, I'm afraid to say, for certain Eastern Europeans. And I should mention one more point, which is that he also played a sociological role. Uh, That is to say that there are a number of scholars, and I use the term scholar advisedly, including Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, who's made a handsome living writing the same book over and over again, talking about, well, if black immigrants like Colin Powell do well, why can't these U.S. Negroes do well? And (laughs) that is a repetitive theme uh, with regard to the right wing in this country. And uh, let me be the first to say that black immigrants too face white supremacy. They to face the grim reaper of U.S. racism. However, I do think that historians of the future will find it at least curious that the top black folk who rose to the highest level, including Barack Obama of Kenyan descent and Kamala Harris of Jamaican and South Asian descent and Colin Powell of Jamaican descent, happen to be immigrants. And it's illustrative of how that's just one more club that's been used to seek to bash uh, the descendants of enslaved North American Africans, of which I am proud to say I am one. Right. Well, I have to say I'm one in that number also. And, you know, I think that there's actually certainly more than a segment, you know, a show, a book, (laughs) a series of books that could be written on that topic It's a sore spot for some people. And I'm glad you mentioned that second point about the kind of the social impact here, because that's, that was one of my questions, but how about looking outside the United States? Like, do you have a sense of how having these like black faces in high places, people like Susan Rice, people like Colin Powell being the, a black face of us imperialism, how that has impacted how the rest of the world, especially the rest of the African diaspora sees us in this country? Well, first of all, let's start with U.S. imperialism. I don't find it accidental that a significant number of U.S. ambassadors to the United Nations, including Andrew Young, Donald McHenry, the aforementioned Susan Rice, the Republican delegate to the United Nations, speaking of Nikki Haley, the current occupant of that seat, have all been either African-Americans or generally people of color. And I think this is a way to put a cosmetic face on the ugliness of U.S. imperialism. Now, with regard to how that's viewed abroad, I don't think that it fools that many people 
However, I do think that Black people in particular should be concerned, if not worried, about this trend because this week we are also marking the 10th anniversary of the liquidation of Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, which took place during the administration of one Barack Obama. And that particular murder, which was captured on tape, uh, mm-hmm. helped to, I'm afraid to say, uh, obliterate whatever reputation that uh, Mr. Obama had in Africa. And given the fact that many have seen the black community of the United States as his most stalwart support, I don't think it's helped our reputation either. Right. Well, speaking of the horrible anniversary of the just invasion of Libya and the assassination murder of Gaddafi. I want to turn our attention next to a story that we've touched on in recent weeks, and that is the basic kidnapping of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. And as we discussed, he's been held in this sort of black site on Cape Verde, forcibly kidnapped there under direction by the United States. And about a week ago, he was, I guess, kidnapped again and brought to the United States where this week he first appeared in court on, I don't know, I don't think any of this is legal under international law, but somehow he's being charged in a U.S. court for basically not abiding by U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. The United States has been trying to basically starve the people of Venezuela of food and fuel and other necessities. And Alex Saab was really successful in circumventing those, those sanctions securing vital food and other necessities for Venezuela around these sanctions and embargo. So what is the latest on that? This is just a new, another case like Meng Wanzhou and this kind of international piracy that we've discussed. Well, my understanding is that Mr. Saab is behind bars in Florida. Perhaps the most chilling aspect of this sordid tale thus far is that apparently he sent a message to his family that he's in good spirits and don't believe any stories that he may have committed suicide, which suggests that Mr. Saab apparently thinks that there are those who would like to see his ultimate demise. Mm. I would like to caution and warn the hotheads in Washington that they're playing with fire You mentioned the daughter of the founder of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, who was subjected to a similar hijacking and was kept for almost three years in Vancouver, British Columbia. In response, the Chinese arrested two Canadians and then released them just as the United States chose to release this chief financial officer of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou. I would also like to caution the hotheads in Washington to realize that what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Uh, We've known for some time that a person like Henry Kissinger, a war criminal, if there ever was one, oftentimes makes 
very elaborate plans for international travel because he's worried about being extradited to stand trial for his many crimes against humanity. And the same could be said for any number of U.S. officials, including George W. Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, uh, Barack Obama. The list is long. So this law of the jungle cuts both ways. And I should also remind the audience that after Mr. Saab was hijacked back to South Florida, the Venezuelan authorities chose to further detain a number of U.S. nationals who have oil interests with Citgo in Venezuela. Right. Well, I guess to continue our conversation about these kinds of of rogue acts, a Brazilian congressional probe of President Jair Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic is saying that um, more than 300 300 deaths, half of the nation's coronavirus death total uh, can be attributed to Bolsonaro's policies in handling the pandemic. They're saying that he tried to induce a sort of herd immunity. Well, my understanding is that there have been about 600,000 deaths from COVID-19 in Brazil, and half of that total is being laid at the doorstep of Mr. Bolsonaro, which would make him one of the most significant mass murderers in the history of planet Earth. You might also recall that when he came to the United Nations a few weeks ago in New York City, uh, he was pictured, photographed, eating pizza on the street because apparently he did not have the paperwork to show that he had been vaccinated that would allow him to enter a certain restaurant. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised he was able to enter the United Nations building on the east side of Manhattan. But there's a larger story with regard to Brazil that we should keep a very close eye on. And that is that Bolsonaro, the self-described Trump of the tropics, has developed a very close relationship with right-wing figures in the United States, such as Steve Bannon, uh, who may be doing jail time soon because of his ignominious role during the January 6, 2021 insurrection on Capitol Hill, and Stephen Miller, the anti-immigrant honcho of Mr. Trump. And they also have developed a kind of international right-wing network because many of these characters, including Michael Pence, the former vice president, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News pundit, has been spending a lot of quality time in Budapest, Hungary, uh, hanging out with Mr. Orban, the right-wing leader who is now being challenged for re-election. So they're developing sustenance from their global connections. That is to say, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro's receiving sustenance from his ties to the United States. The United States right-wing is receiving sustenance from his ties to Hungary and vice versa. And uh, I think it's well past time uh, for uh, our friends and comrades to act similarly, except from the left side of the political spectrum. 
Well, well, I guess finally, uh, speaking of the far right, uh, I want to kind of switch our attention uh, locally. You, you mentioned the the vote taken here this week to recommend, um, I don't know whether it's uh, recommend charges or uh, against Bannon for you know basically contempt of Congress for you know for failing to appear uh, before the January sixth commission. But um, in your state, <laughs> I know it's not not really your state, but uh, where you spend a lot of time in Texas. Uh, we've had the attack on voting rights, uh, the attack on abortion rights, the attack on um, asylum seekers, <laughs> and now so-called attack on criti- critical race theory, which is really uh, the state legislature passing a law to basically curtail the subject of race being taught in schools um, has yielded uh, the latest controversy. A school district there um, is under fire after a recording was leaked of a school administrator encouraging teachers to introduce opposing views to the Holocaust. The administrator says that such a move was necessary in wake of that new state legislation I just mentioned that curtails the teaching of race. And I'm going to play a little clip of that recording that has gone viral. As you go through, just try to remember the concepts of 3979 and make sure that if, if, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing so she was basically saying, you know, if you have a book on the Holocaust, remember, make sure you have a, another book uh, with an opposing view. And the teacher says, how do you oppose the Holocaust? So this is what this has come to this whole fake. Well, the campaign is very real and very fascist, but I'm just saying it's, it's not over critical race theory. People are basically opposing teaching the truth about American history and now opposing teaching the the truth about Nazi Germany. Well, obviously, Texas is on a slippery slope. This uh, ill-conceived legislation was designed to circumscribe accurate and adequate history with regard to enslavement of Africans and dispossession of the indigenous population. However, it was written so sloppily, not to mention the fact that the the logic of this legislation would lead to what your audience just heard, which is demanding an opposing point of view with regard to the Holocaust. And even though that was ridiculed, I think we have to dig a little deeper and recognize that we are kind of at a fork in the road because increasingly what you see are a number of particularly black intellectuals are trying to write a new story about the founding of the United States, moving away from the creation myth, the immaculate conception idea of the birth of the United States of America. And this has been resisted not only by the right wing, uh, per Mr. Trump's 1776 commission, per this legislation in Texas and elsewhere, but there are many who consider themselves radical, who have opposed this particular attempt 
to reframe and retell the story of how this country was born. And I'm not sure if these people on the left recognize how they're giving sustenance uh, to this kind of demagogy that you now see in the state of Texas, and it will come back to haunt them and certainly will continue to haunt us. This whole conversation reminds me so much about our our talk about the documentary series Exterminate All the Brutes by Raoul Peck. And it occurs to me that uh, a phenomenal work of art like that, that really goes through, that makes the, connects the dots uh, between Europe before the United States was even founded, the beginnings of the distinctions of race and religion and what they wanted to consider the differences in blood in Europe between Christians and Muslims and the beginnings of settler colonialism, uh, slavery, and have all culminated to this point, really. And that one point along that way is the Holocaust, that it's not just about the enslavement of Black people and settler colonialism here, but ideas that began long ago uh, in Europe in terms of the differences between, you know, whites and and Jews and uh, people of different religion. And, And certainly that's something that we talked about when we discussed your book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. And it just, it's just that when we have these discussions and we start talking about things like critical race theory, which is really just history, is them objecting to there being any acknowledgement of the horrors of slavery and genocide and what, was, what happened here at the founding of this country and that exists to this day. It's very clear to me that something like Exterminate All the Brutes or your book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, would definitely be in the crosshairs of this t- in this type of environment, and it seems very dangerous. So thank you, Gerald, for helping me to sort through all these many topics and to also encourage our listeners in to support Pacifica Radio, one of the few places where you're going to have this kind of conversation and analysis. And I thank you so much for providing it here on On the Ground. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Professor Gerald Horn for their contributions to the show. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan and Beats by Rap and Hip Hop Beat Mister. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.